Philippians chapter <clears throat> 2. We're now picking up in uh, verse 12. And Paul's continuing on his... Um, continue on with his message of unity. Um, something that he begun all the way back in, in chapter one, calling the church, um, the Philippians to stand together um, in a firm perspective to stand together shoulder to shoulder. Um, he says this in uh, verse 27, only let, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so he, he has this um, description of uh, the situation that he's calling them to live a life that is worthy of the gospel he recognizes that he is has the potential to come and see them, or as he is currently absent, um, that may continue. But what he wants, above all, is that they would stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But then he continues in the beginning of chapter 2 uh, to lay out this theological structure that we said last week was called the Christ hymn. Uh, it's one of a few Christ hymns in scripture, but he uses this as kind of the foundation um, theologically for the points that he'll begin to make this morning. He, uh, he has demonstrated that Christ has come and he has humbled himself, that he has acted in service to his people, that he was obedient uh, even to death at the cross. And then as a result, God has exalted him highly and given him the name that is above every name. Uh, but as, as this has um, happened, Paul calls them now to respond in worship. That's why he's making that point, you know, um, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so as such, he's, Paul's already put in the work. He's done the work here with the Philippians. He, he has brought the, um, the theological framework to them in the Christ hymn, and the kind of purpose of this is kind of like his big summary is that when we hold these similar theological convictions, when we understand the humility of Christ, when we understand his condescension, when we understand his obedience upon earth, his obedience to the father. Um, and then also his trusting God, the father to exalt him in due time. We find that, we see that perfect work of salvation. We see that plan of salvation and it causes us to respond in worship. And, and one thing that, um, that comes about when we worship is that we are great, greatly united. We are seeing Christ together. We are in fact standing firm uh, in one spirit. We are uh, you know, side by side. And so um, Paul has done this work, but now as he comes to the text this morning, uh, he is focusing back on reminding them uh, of their need to continue being faithful, their need to continue in unity uh, towards one another. Um, and he starts off with these words in uh, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he says, since you guys have just heard this theological framework, since you've just heard what Christ has done, since you, we've just called you to worship, now it is your turn, your, your time. He says, church, it's your job now. And this is uh, the same for us as we have understood the theological framework, as we come to this point in, uh, in history, as we come in the history of uh, of the church and the history of our, you know, our county, our city right now, as we are a group of people who are um, scattered yet gathered together, it is our job to take up the charge of uh, responding to Christ, seeing who he is and, and um, putting action to that. And so he says here, um, therefore, my beloved, it's, it's, it's your turn. 
He's speaking to them with this uh, warm affection. He says, uh, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul makes this, this uh, confession, you know, that he, they have been obedient when he's been there with them. And when he's not been there, he's calling them to continue in that obedience. But I want you to see here the theological ju the jump that Paul makes. Because what he does is he bases his call for obedience directly on Jesus's obedience in the Christ hymn. That's why he says that Christ was obedient even to the point of death, even death at a cross. He's a, so he's giving this as the framework. If Christ has done this, then you also ought to continue in obedience. Right? Christ has perfectly obeyed the Father, and so now it's our turn to obey. It's our turn to walk with Jesus. And, and this is how Paul is putting out his line of thinking uh, for, for the Philippians. He wants them to be like Christ, right? So he's not so much laying out here a list of rules, right? Uh, he, he says, uh, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, when he says that, he's not saying, okay, well, here's the list of things that you have to obey. What he's essentially saying there is, as Christ has obeyed, now you obey. He's calling us to be like Jesus, not just to be a people who are acting in obedience to a list of rules. He's saying you should mirror Christ's character, not just do the thing that's in the list, right? Uh, that's why we're not getting a very comprehensive list here. He's got a couple uh, tips that reflect upon having Christ-like character, but there's not this like, okay, well, here's now what you need to do as a response. But rather, he says that we ought to uh, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We'll get to that point um, in a bit here. But what Paul does here is he says, you have obeyed. You have acted uh, in obedience in my presence. Now, in my absence, continue. Continue on. And I want you to see this. When Paul is telling them to obey, he's also not saying, you guys have just been doing a terrible job. What he's actually doing is he's saying, you guys have been crushing it. You guys have been obedient in my presence. I want you to keep going. I want, he's, he's trying to provide some encouragement for them. He's trying to come alongside and to remind them that like you guys have been, you guys have been doing well. He's bringing affirmation to their obedience thus far, right? Remember, he calls them partners in the gospel, that they are partakers of grace together. He's trying to come alongside them and encourage them uh, in, from a point of their past obedience in order to strengthen them and motivate them to work even harder to be Christ-like in the future, to be more obedient, to be even more intentional when he's not there. Because the reality is, is it's easy to be intentional when you know that people are watching you. It's easy to be intentional when people are around, you know someone's going to check on you, when you know you've got a progress report coming. But what Paul says here is that we ought to know who we are obeying. As Christ has been obedient, then we also want to be obedient. You've got to know that you're obeying Jesus, not Paul. If you're just obeying because man is in your, uh, in your view, then you're going to be distracted and you're going to do better when they're around and you're going to you know, be less likely to focus when they're not around. But what Paul says is, remember that you are obeying Christ, that you are following him. You're trying to discover what he's doing and his desires. And so don't look for uh, ways to relieve your path of obedience. Don't look for ways to take shortcuts. Go with Jesus on the journey. Obey and walk with him. So he continues and he tells us um, the way to continue obeying Christ is to practice, is to work something out. So he continues in verse 12. He says, um, uh, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he, he says here, 
bring about, create this possibility, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul has not taken a sudden theological U-turn in the sense that this whole time he's been saying we've been saved by grace through faith and not of our own works here, but rather what Paul is doing here when he says work out your own salvation, he's simply looking back to the call that he had laid out um, just previously that we saw in, uh, in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what he's talking about when he says, work out your own salvation. He's saying, have your conduct be worthy. Practice this. Bring about this in your life. Have your conduct be worthy of the gospel. It's looking back to that point where we are rescued by grace through faith, that where we are looking back to the cross, it's looking back to see what we have been saved from. It looks back to our, our weakness and our helplessness, but then looks forward into uh, God's supernatural empowering for his people to walk with him, to go on this journey with him. And so he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying that for the Christian community, for you and I, for the Philippian church, it's our job to put the, uh, the principles and the power of the gospel into practice in our lives daily, to bring about these things in our lives so where we are working uh, to practice them, that we are, are coming back uh, to that place where we are understanding the principles of the gospel, that we are understanding the power that is ours in Christ, when we trust in Christ for salvation, we are sealed with His Spirit. We are empowered by His Spirit to live for God's glory. And He says, "Remember this." And oftentimes we forget it. We stray. We go our own way. We forget. And this is something that is in the process of being worked out of us. And we are becoming stronger, not because of our own work, but because we are becoming more Christ-like when we surrender to Jesus again and again and again. When we deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him. And so he says here that we ought to work these things out with fear and trembling, this attitude of humility and submission at God's presence or in the presence of the community of faith, right? So what, as, as Paul lays this out here, he's, he's drawing um, out like this, this point that we ought to obey. But he's saying here that, you've obeyed in my presence, but in my absence, don't think of this as you have less power, but rather be reminded that God's presence is with you, that Jesus is with you, that he is the one who is enabling you. He is the one that is working in you. And so this is what he gets to as we come to verse 13. And he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, as we look at this, you could break this phrase down and this is like, you could take verse 13 and have like 12 sermons about this. But simply put, when Paul makes this statement, he is bringing encouragement to the Philippians. He's bringing encouragement to you and I because it tells us <clears throat> here that it is God who is the initiator. It is God is the one who brings about both the desire and the ability to be obedient. He gives us the desire and he gives us the ability to be obedient. It is God who works in you right? This idea of working in is to, to it's like a, uh, this active idea that you're operating in, in effectiveness, that you're, you're um, putting all of the capabilities that are available to you into practice. And Paul says here, it is God who is the one who is accomplishing this. You're not the one who's accomplishing this. It is God who is, who is active in our lives. It is God who is active 
to bring about this work in our lives. And this echoes really what he said all along. If you look back to chapter one, um, when we looked at verse six, uh, he says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul has already made this point that it is God who begins the work. It is God who will continue the work. But he says there back in verse six also that it is God who will finish the work. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end. He begins the work, he continues the work, and he finishes the work. And I think that can be a word of encouragement to us because sometimes it feels like when you're uh, when you're a Christian and you're walking through the Christian life, you're like, man, like I just keep blowing it. I keep messing up. I, I can't get on track. But he says here that God will be faithful. He will continue to do the work. He will be the one who will see you through to the end. He will complete the work that he began in you. And so we can just keep submitting ourselves to him knowing that he is going to continue to refine us, to make us more Christ-like, to give us those desires, um, allowing us to work in the, the good works that he has already prepared beforehand for us. Now, we've spoken about God working, right? It is God who works in you. But as you look at uh, that concept, here, remember, Paul is writing to the Philippian church. He's writing to the Philippian church. He's not writing to the Philippian individuals. And so when we look at God working in you, we find that this is really a, a, a corporate you. This isn't individuals. This is the group, the group of people. It says, here is the standard. Here is the expectation. Here's what God will accomplish in you, church, right? And so as we read these words, we take them as a corporate you, uh, first and foremost, that this is God being faithful to lead his church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has a plan. He's working in his people. And so we are looking to him. He is doing what he wants to do, and we are getting on board with what he wants to do. We're not coming up with our own plans. We're not going our own way. We're not figuring out our own thing. What does he want to do? And he wants to work in his church to sanctify his people, to make us more Christ-like, to make us more obedient, to, uh, to uh, magnify our witness so that we might uh, be seen to be loving and the world will know that we belong to him by our love for one another. And so here we find that this is uh, a corporate you, but as we acknowledge that this is written to the church, it's also the church is made up of individuals. And so while it is coming to a group of people, it doesn't work if the individuals in the church also decide they want to go their own way. And so, again, this speaks to the idea of the group of people who make up the church standing side by side in the gospel. You've got to take your job seriously. You've got to be one who is pursuing Christ so that you can say that I'm able to stand side by side with someone else who's pursuing Jesus in the church so that way we can have a collective focus together, that we are acknowledging together that Christ is Lord. And so it's our job as individuals to meet with Jesus, to trust in him for salvation, to let him sanctify us, to uh, get in the prayer room and and learn to obey him and to walk with him so that when, when we come together collectively, it can be said of our church that we've not left our first love, that we are focused on serving the king, that we have acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we are laser focused on obeying him. And that's what Paul's getting at here. This is a collective you, but it starts with the individuals. And so we're working to bring that unity about, as Paul has said. Uh, and he says here, that it is God who works in you. God is empowering that work for the individual, but also empowering the work of the church. Right? It is God who empowers the individual, but then brings this uh, power to bear in greater number when we are gathered as the church. We find something similar um, in Ephesians chapter 2. I've uh, mentioned it briefly. Uh, <clears throat> in verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? So there's that beginning. We are his work, his good work. We're created in Christ Jesus. There's a beginning at the cross, what Paul has just referenced in the Christ hymn, this beginning of the work for our salvation, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so it is God who is empowering his work in his people, and it's an expression of his work when we work uh, alongside him, when we work with him. And so he says uh, that we are, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we have uh, this first acknowledgement that it is God who is at work, God who is uh, initiating, but then he works in us both to give us this desire to do the work. Um, he's doing the willing and he's doing the working within us. He's calling us to walk with him. He's giving us these righteous desires to serve him, to recognize that we are his workmanship, and then we are acting in accordance with his plan and his will and what he wants to do. Uh, and then he goes on um, to, to, to describe just some of the practicalities and the things that get in the way uh, of our, um, our obedience to him. And most of the time, those things happen when we are in opposition to his plan, to the outcome of that work. So he says, first, we need to have these righteous desires that we have the will to do this. And it's not brought about by our own desire, but it's God who is working in us to will. And God, who is working in us to work. He's bringing about these things. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews um, explains, too, that there's, again, this tension that exists here, that God's willing and God's working and, and also ending here in God's own purposes. In uh, Hebrews chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 20, this is kind of the, this is kind of the, end of the book as he's kind of wrapping up in the after speaking about for all these chapters about how Jesus is better and and nothing can rival Christ he finishes kind of with, with this little benediction in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant right okay so like already it's just so good because we're talking here about God, the God of peace, who we're talking about the resurrection. We're talking about that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. So now he's leading the church, right? And we're talking about a covenant that God has made with us, the blood of the eternal covenant, right? So he says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, right? So there's He's equipping you with what you need, everything good, that you may do his will, obeying him, right? Following him, right? And then it goes on, working in us, right? So there's the, there's the, his will. He's giving us the equipping to do that. Everything good that we might need to do his will. And then also the empowering to do it, working in us, that which is, again, now here's the goal, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory forever and ever. Amen. So he says here that the goal is his good pleasure. And that's what, uh, that's what is echoed here in uh, Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's for his good pleasure. The goal of God's work is the fulfillment of his good pleasure, his good purposes that he has. And so God fulfills those purposes, his own purpose, by working in us. He gives us the will, the desire, and he gives us what we need to work out our own salvation, right? For example, having conduct that is worthy of the gospel. And again, this is our job as individuals so that we might be seen collectively. And that's more of what the focus is here, that collectively we would be a people who have conduct worthy of the gospel, that we have greater unity. But now as we come to verse 14, he kind of lays out a couple things that are 
the things that get in the way of unity, the things that distract us um, frequently from having conduct worthy of the gospel. He says here in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Uh, your, your passage might say something a little bit different. It might say, uh, do all things without grumbling or complaining or grumbling or, or disputing. I think uh, disputing and complaining and questioning, I think that gives us a pretty good intersection of what that means, right? Sometimes, like I know for me, uh, the, my, my, my um, disputing or my, or my complaining takes the form of questioning, that's, that's how it manifests itself uh, most frequently. Like, that's the practice. I'm like, I don't understand what's happening. Like, I need to know analytically from, like, top to bottom, where's my outline with my spreadsheet of exactly what's happening so I can, like, verify and checklist this whole thing. And if I can weigh against my uh, supernatural judgment about whether I think this is a good plan or not, right? Like, I don't have that supernatural judgment. I can't see the end from the beginning. I don't have the end all be all of assessing the plan. But uh, oftentimes it comes in that form of questioning. And so uh, I know for me, practically and personally, before I get to that point, um, before I open my mouth, I have to kind of like do a little bit of praying to figure out like, why do I want to know these things uh, in order to not be someone who is complaining because asking questions isn't bad, right? Um, disputing necessarily isn't bad, uh, but it's rather uh, what is the motive behind that. And sometimes, uh, and what Paul's getting at here is that this is an idea of grumbling or complaining. <clears throat> so he says this, do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing or questioning. But before we get to looking at grumbling or disputing, uh, first, we want to see that he applies this to all things, right? All things. He says every aspect of our life, every, every area, every dimension of our life should be transformed by our new life in Christ. It should be transformed by salvation. It should be completely reoriented and made new. Do all things. He doesn't exempt anything. He doesn't say do all things except for like these things are okay. Like, you know, he doesn't come at it and say, okay, well, analytically, if you're doing like, if, if you're looking at these areas of life, uh, they are more suited to people who are skilled in, in these practices or this particular type of business is one where like you can lean on your analytical skills mostly and you can just look at it from like a purely like mathematical perspective. Uh, rather, he says, every area, every area of life comes under uh, the transforming work of new life in Christ. And so he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing or complaining or questioning. Uh, first, he talks here about grumbling, right? He's talking about this idea where you're kind of speaking under your breath. You're like saying these complaints you're, you're speaking kind of about people and making these negative comments um, behind their back and talking to one another. Maybe gossip might fall under this. Uh, but then he talks about having this idea of disputing, right? Disputing, complaining, questioning. And, and I think practically here, uh, I've kind of shared how it works out in how I understand it to be. But historically, Paul's doing something a little bit deeper here. Um, I don't want to go down this path because we'll end up, well, I don't want to go down here for too long, but because we'll end up like looking at the entire history of Israel. But when Paul mentions this here, in the back of his mind, he's speaking to a context. He's speaking to something that um, his uh, hearers would be familiar with, that they would have heard the story of Israel. And when he says, do all things without complaining or disputing, questioning, that, that, that kind of like phrase there uh, in the Greek and would have been translated back to, um, to Hebrew there uh, would have been used in such a way that is connected uh, most explicitly 
maybe not most explicitly, but it definitely draws a clear connection uh, to Israel wandering around in the wilderness, right? When God rescues uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt and calls them to worship him, uh, and he's going to come and dwell with them, they have, they, he asks them to be obedient, and they just are continually disobedient, going their own way, and as a result, they end up wandering around for all these years, but it's said again and again throughout Israel's wanderings that they grumble against Moses and Aaron, that they, um, Moses and Aaron are speaking what the Lord is giving them to say, uh, and, and they keep grumbling, and they keep complaining, and they keep sh sharing all of these, like questioning what God is doing, and questioning Moses, um, and Paul even uses this uh, similar in similar fashion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, <clears throat> um, verse 9 and 10. He says, we must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He's kind of speaking to this time of the Israelites in the wilderness, and he says, don't be grumbling, don't be complaining there. And, and so he kind of uses this to, to bring to bear in their mind this idea of obedience as connected through Israel's history. And so the reason why he brings this about and connects it so explicitly is because remember, the reason why the collective group wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness is because it started with complaining and grumbling and disputing and questioning from a few people. And that grew into a bigger problem with a greater amount of people. And that led to a lot of people not being able to enter into the land. That led to a lot of people uh, not being able to go until the entire generation died off. It, like none of those people who were originally uh, rescued out of Egypt made it in to the promised land. It was all of their, uh, their children. And so here, Paul's saying that complaining, grumbling, disputing, questioning in this way leads to a serious lack of unity within the church. It leads to setting up places where uh, it, we are more focused on one another. We're focused on our own way rather than taking direction from the chief shepherd. <clears throat> and so he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So when we complain, when we grumble, when we dispute, when we question, it removes from us the characteristic that we have as children of God. We're not supposed to be people who are grumbling and complaining. He says, the, the reason we should avoid these things is so we might be blameless and innocent, that we might be seen as children of God who are without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So he brings out a contrast that the, that the group of Christians are to be blameless, that they, no, no one should be able to find fault in the Christian community because we are united. We have one love in Christ, one spirit that we are focused on one mission, that we are a group of people who are uh, innocent, as he describes, that we're not, um, we're not being double-minded or double-speaking, that we uh, are true to what we are saying, that we're letting our yes be yes and our no be no, that we are rightly representing God's character, uh, and that we are without blemish, that we are marked uh, by purity, that we're not stirring up frustration and anger and quarrels amongst one another, but rather that we are looking to be united, that there is not a mark that is uh, visible to the outside world. Because as he says here, uh, there is a crooked and twisted generation that is watching, that we are living in the midst of. We live in this particular context. And he says, we should stand out as a contrast amongst, uh, amongst the background of this crooked and twisted generation. Again, Paul calling, reaching back into Israel's history to call them to a place of understanding um, their call to obedience. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 
he speaks, and this is where he kind of pulls these words from, it seems. In Deuteronomy uh, 32, 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Right, so we find the words of uh, Deuteronomy 32 describing that God's people are not standing out, that they're going their own way, that they are operating with this attitude that is not like children of God. They are no longer his children. They're far from him. And so we find that Paul says, you are God's children. Do not become like a crooked and twisted generation. The surrounding culture is twisted and bent. It's dishonest. And you have left that. You, the, those people are, have their own moral values, but your relationship comes from being in this covenant with Christ and his standard, what he desires to do. And he says that you ought to stand out as a contrast. And this is why he uh, continues on in verse 15. Um, he calls them to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, uh, as he comes now to speak of this contrast, he pulls out this phrase, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, plainly speaking here, he's not speaking to street lights, which didn't exist then, where they had, you know, like these bright LEDs that were lighting up their roads, but rather he's speaking of the stars and the sky, the sun and the moon and, uh, and, and these heavenly bodies. And these were things by which uh, they oriented themselves, right? And those stars in the sky, the lights, the heavenly lights, they would stand out as a contrast against the blackness of night. And so he says here, as you use those things to navigate, as you use those things to manage your calendar and to find out what day it is or to find out the cycle of the moon to figure out, you know, how the tides are going to work or you're going to figure out um, what seasons and how, how these things all work and how they help you navigate life. Christians, you also ought to be a people who are standing out in contrast against the blackness of a crooked and twisted generation, the darkness of a crooked and twisted generation. And as such, the surrounding culture should be able to see that contrast between you and them and that you can help them find their way in the world, that you can help them navigate. They might not be able to see amongst one another, but they might be able to see you and say, oh, I see the times and the seasons and see how I need to adjust. They're they should be taking their cues from how the church is acting. And so we act as a uh, navigation system of sorts, right? We act as a way for uh, the world to find the truth of the gospel, that we act as a way that they would be pointed back to Christ. Even Jesus said this in Matthew chapter five. He says, uh, that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, right? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good work and give glory to your father who is in heaven. When you act as that contrast, when they see it helps them navigate life. And then they see that God is the one who has lit that lamp that allows that to stand bright to be a contrast against the world and so he says among whom you shine as lights in the world he calls the church to this he calls you and i to this uh, particularly in this time where you know everybody wants to jump on one bandwagon or the other about uh, the coronavirus or how the government should be run or this or that like right christians around the, we don't have like a government christians who are are in the various uh, countries of the world, we all serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we have local and state laws that we want to be wise with, but we don't want to be um, a people who are trying to serve uh, any particular government. We are trying to be as faithful as possible so that people can see Jesus. What allows people to see Jesus? What allows us to maximize that witness? What allows us to shine as lights in the world. We don't want to be a people who are just 
who, who don't have contrast in our lives because we are a people who are uh, so like the world that people can't see that difference. We want to be a contrast so that people can see a clear difference between us and the world, right? And, and, and there should be that so people can't say, we don't want the, the world to say, oh, you're one of us. Yeah, I see you get it. Right? We want people to understand that, like, I thought you were one of us, but you're not. I, th- I, I thought we saw eye to eye on this, but, but we don't. Right? There should be that contrast that exists because our politics are the politics of Christ. Our church follows Jesus. Wherever he's going, whatever he's doing, that's what we're doing. We're not going our own way. We're not doing our own thing. And so uh, he says here, that you got to be prepared to be that contrast. He continues in verse 16, um, and he says this, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, I love this because here's some practical tips for us. How do we, how do we um, become blameless children of God who shine as lights in the world? How do we do this? I mean, it's great to have some direct like instruction on how to be successful with this. I could not appreciate this more because sometimes it's a little bit of a moving target. And you're like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. Paul says here, here's what you should do. Hold fast to the word of life. Maintain your grasp on Jesus. Hold fast to the word of life. Be explicitly focused on maintaining a grasp on the word of life. The only way that you are going to be able to stand firm, the only way that you're going to be able to uh, be on a firm foundation in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation is to hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast. Right? Uh, I love this because it gives us focus. And when you're holding fast to the word of life, then you don't have time to hold on to other things. You don't have time to hold on to your own personal desires. You don't have time to hold on to what other people are trying to give you, their causes, or they're like, we got to rally this way, or we're going to, we're all going to do this thing, or we're all going to like, you know, um, like move in this direction together. No, we are holding fast to the word of life. We are focused on serving the Lord. We are focused on, on Jesus. That's what we're focused on, right? And letting our light shine so that they might give glory to God and that we might give glory to God with that. And Paul gives his reason here why they ought to hold fast. Um, he kind of has like this personal interest in this. He says that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He wants to, he wants to boast in their faithfulness that he's and that they are giving God the glory. He wants God to be glorified in their lives. And so he says, I I want to be able to be someone who is glorifying God. He's not wanting to boast in their work or their efforts. It's not about his, self-glorification. It's not about his self-praise, but rather he's boasting in the grace of God, that God has enabled his people, that God has equipped his people, God has empowered his people and allowed them. And so he looks forward to that day where it will be revealed, right? He says that it will be revealed at the day of Christ. He has this expectation that he will stand before Christ, that we will all be there one day, and that the quality of his work will be inspected that it will be seen about what was hay and stubble and what was refined in the fire and comes out as, as this pure gold or silver, precious stones. He says, I want to see uh, the fruitfulness of this. I want God to be glorified as, uh, as this is tested here in the fire. He's excited about that day. And so he says here, I am someone who is pressing in. I'm working hard. I don't run or labor in vain. I love that because he just uses practicality for us. Being a runner, being a laborer. I've spoken to you guys about running probably too much, about all the practicing and the tips and this and that and the analogies. But even Paul uses it again here, right? He he gets to the idea of this, this focus of uh, putting in the work every day. He gets to the, the focus of, 
laboring, working hard, toiling, right? But again, you're not working in your own strength, right? You're working with the will and the work that God provides. And so he finishes in verse uh, 17 and 18 with his desire to see the Philippians grow in faith, his desire to see us grow in faith. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So Paul gets to this and uh, he, he jumps in here with um, a bit of a word picture, if you will. Uh, he looks here at the idea of an animal being offered on the altar, this sacrifice that's being offered. He says that they are uh, offering this sacrificial offering of of their faith that they are submitting themselves to the lord again and again and again uh, each day that they're growing in faith and he says i am willing to to give and pour out a drink offering even upon that and this is something that uh <clears throat> you know in uh, as a part of like the sacrificial offering the drink offering would be often poured out as an additional sacrifice to the burnt offering and so he says here that like i want to complete this offering, there's already this main offering of the burnt sacrifice on the, on the altar. And I want to, to pour out um, myself upon, upon that. And so he says, your faith is here and I'm willing to even, to even go the distance and give out my own life. If my, if I am, uh, if I go to my death in service of the Lord, if I am a, a drink offering poured out as the sacrifice, then it will lead to um, your quality in your obedience, that you will see that I'm completing it and that you will become more Christ-like. I'm willing to go to that length, he says. And so uh, he, he shares this with them and he says, I'm so happy to do this. His desire is to see them grow in faith, to be refined, to be sanctified uh, so much that he ends uh, in verse 17 with these words, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He says, you guys are making this sacrifice and I'm so glad and I'm rejoicing in that. And I, if, if I have to be a drink offering that's poured out on your behalf, even more so, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And he says, uh, together, he wants them to rejoice. It's not something that, that is um, only for that one group or that one particular individual, but he's saying here that this joy that we that he's finding in Christ, the joy that the Philippians are finding in Christ is contagious, that it begins to, to rub off on others when we're standing shoulder to shoulder, when we're standing side by side, when we have that focus on Christ, it begins to, to trickle down and we begin to understand uh, how we are treasuring Christ more deeply as individuals. And then it, uh, that comes over uh, the whole corporate group. And so he gives them this charge in verse 18, uh, where we end this morning. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And so he ends with kind of this, this call to, for them to rejoice, to then find their joy in Christ, find their joy in what he has done, uh, what Christ has done for them. Uh, in their partnership together in the gospel and that they are partakers of grace together. He wants them to have this together. You should be glad. He says, I'm glad and I rejoice. Now you should be glad and that you should rejoice together with me. He says, don't, don't worry about my circumstance. Don't worry about my situation, Philippians. Don't worry about what I'm going through. Don't be focused on uh, how that will work out in my life. Don't give your worries and anxieties and fears to my circumstances someone who's, uh, you know, in jail, somebody who's writing from a difficult situation here, but rather let's rejoice together. He's calling them to have this, um, for them to share this fellowship in suffering, um, in sacrifice, in service, but also in joy, that they would uh, see and savor Christ together, that they would understand who he is and what he's done and that it would compel them into a greater joy as they know that they have been loved, not 
because they were lovely of themselves, but be Christ has set because Christ has set his love upon them and welcomed them into uh, his family. And so this is our focus as well as he makes his way through this whole, um, this whole trajectory of being obedient as Christ has been obedient. It ends with us again, treasuring Christ. Our obedience flows out of seeing Jesus clearly, wanting, recognizing that we belong to him, being like him. And then when we uh, work, when God works in us to will and, um, and to, to do for his good pleasure, then it leads to our greater joy in Christ when we see him at work in our lives and we see him becoming Christ, like when we see other people worship. And so it, it continues on in this, in this cycle where we are able then to uh, rejoice together um, in, in every way. And so I think a very practical, um, a very practical session, uh, section for us this morning that we can hold fast to the word of life so that we might not be caught up. It's that simplicity of coming to the scriptures each day, coming to Christ each day, and uh, reorienting our focus upon him every day so we can say, what are you doing, God? Where are you going? How can we serve you? How can we be faithful? And not worrying about how we can blend in with the generation around us, but rather being a people who are standing out as a contrast not because we're annoying, but because we love Jesus. And that's what happens when you love Jesus. So let's pray and we'll respond now in worship. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness. Um, we're thankful <clears throat> that you've given us such practicality in, um, in walking with you. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, give us direction, empower us by your Holy Spirit, and uh, work in us, give us your, that desire, that will um, to obey you and empower us, Lord, again, by your Holy Spirit um, <clears throat> so that you might be glorified in our lives. Lord, we want you um, to receive all that you are due. And um, Lord, we ask that you would you complete that work that you've begun in us and as you are the author and finisher of our faith. Um, we look to see your faithfulness as we move um, from day to day in this, in this time period, as um, we move through this um, kind of season of quarantine, may we be a people who are interested in, being Christ-like, in being children of God who are without blemish, who are innocent and blameless. And so, Lord, give us um, your character and call us to see you clearly and respond in worship, Lord. We love you. Amen.